Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be speaking with Rashad Tobakawala. He has been a Chief Strategist and Chief Growth Officer at Publicis Group, an advertising and communications firm with over 80,000 employees worldwide. Rashad has been recognized by Business Week as one of top business leaders globally and by Time Magazine as one of top five marketing leaders worldwide. I really enjoyed the conversation with Rashad. We talked about the pandemic aftermath and most specifically, restoring the soul of business, which is the subject of his most recent book. Rashad calls it as he sees it. He talks about the turd on the table and he talks about leaders and what leaders need to do to move their organizations forward. You will really enjoy this conversation too. And if you do, please make sure to share it with at least one colleague, one other leader, so you can help change organizational culture too. Now here is my conversation with Rishad Tobakawala. Rishad Tobakawala, welcome to Partnering Leadership. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. Rishad, I have to tell you, you're one of those people that after having read your book, I've gotten into reading your blog posts and they have had significant impact on my leadership thought and I share it with lots of people. So starting out the conversation, I would definitely recommend for people to go read your book and follow you on social media. Thank you very much. Yes. Thanks. In fact, this new newsletter that I began, which I was mentioning you, which people can find at rishad.substack.com, which you can put in your show notes, has become intensely popular. And I think there is a hunger for a combination of advice that both is relevant, that people can do, and often takes on certain myths that we all know don't matter. Something that I call the turd on the table, which is too many times at work, we gather around a table when we used to gather around tables. Now we gather around, I guess, screens. And we look at something that's moist and brown and we think it's a brownie, but we all know it's a piece of shit. So I just say, look, it's a piece of shit. That helps. And I absolutely love that. That's a great chapter in the book also, Rishad. Rishad, actually in the book, you have a great perspective with respect to everyone talking about data and data being the future of where business is headed. And that goes partially to the basis of your book. Love the title, Restoring the Soul of Business. So what inspired you to write the book? So there are three reasons I wrote the book. The first reason I wrote the book was increasingly I was beginning to worry that too many of my clients, and to a certain extent parts of my company, were increasingly becoming so besotted by data that they were not paying attention to some other components like culture, creativity, storytelling. And as someone who was in the marketing and advertising business, my belief was like, I don't know how this works because if you think about it, the reason somebody buys a brand is emotional, it's not rational. In fact, we don't make many decisions that are rational. If we made decisions that were rational, 
the human life would cease because no parent would compute all the costs and heartache of having kids and say, we want to have it anyway. If they had a spreadsheet, they wouldn't do it. The reason you buy your car, unless your car is the cheapest car you can get, you sometimes get a car twice as expensive as the cheapest car, sometimes three times as expensive. There's no data that supports, you know, buying a Mercedes or a high-level Toyota or a Cadillac. There is none. None. It's a sense of feeling, pride, achievement, design, everything that has got nothing to do with data. And so my whole stuff is people choose with their hearts that they use numbers to justify what they just did. So the second reason was everything I was hearing didn't actually factor in how people were making decisions. So one is people were skewing too much towards data. But the other was, hey, listen, that's not the way people are making decisions. So I don't know what you're doing. But the third was companies that were very data-centric or, on the other hand, completely story-centric, tended to do much worse than companies that combined the story of the spreadsheet. So very simple thought is if you basically think about Southwest Airlines versus United Airlines. United Airlines is fixated on data. Southwest can't fly without safety. Southwest flies the same kind of planes that United flies, or at least a subsection, which is 737. Same airports, same FAA rules, actually cheaper tickets, better service, better experience. What's the difference? Culture, stewards and stewardesses, throwing peanuts in your face, whatever it is. Costco versus the old Walmart. Microsoft before and after Satya Nadella. It's all around us. And my whole stuff is, have we gone cosmically blind just because some of the most high capital companies like Google and Amazon and our data companies, they're unique. They're very unique. Almost no company. They're less than two dozen companies that have the kind of information and data they have. You know, for all the data that Procter & Gamble has, what do they know? They eventually know by dirt removal habits. Because everything that they talk about is about dirt, removing it from my butt, my teeth, etc. I don't define my life with dirt removal. And so the whole idea basically is, yes, data is important. It's like electricity. Your business can't do without it. But tell me which business differentiates itself on the use of electricity. Does the company come in and say, we know how to do kilowatts better than anybody else, so hire us? Come on. And that is the whole thing. We have this collective delusion where people refuse to actually speak. They refuse to think. And so this book was like, hey, come on, people. Let's, let's talk about it. And so those were the reasons that I wrote it. And I would love to get your perspective on a couple of those, Rishad. You say change sucks, but irrelevance is worse. So I want to get some of your thoughts and insights on leaders as they're reflecting on leading their organizations through change at a time when that is needed more than probably ever before. Yes. So one of the key things is when people tell you that change is good, as someone who stayed in the same company for 37, and I still work with them, I'm still an advisor, I agree a lot of stuff. And I've stayed in the same city of Chicago for 40 years and I've known my wife. Like today's our 36th anniversary, but we've known each other for 44 years. I would basically say you're looking at someone who doesn't like change. You know, same bosses, same company, same city, same wife, what the hell. And that's because when someone tells me, you know, change is good, I say, I'm happy, why don't you change? And change is difficult because when you start changing, you don't know what you're doing. Like when you were young, you were learning how to have a bike. Guess what happened? You basically had little pain in your knees, little scrapes. You fell off. People laughed at you. Change is like that. Whenever you have to do something new, it's like riding a bike for the first time. You fall off. People laugh at you. You don't know what the hell you're doing. 
And so you pretend, so you pretend, you say, yeah, I've ridden a bike, or you talk about bike parts, but you yourself, you never got on a bike, which is what most leaders now are pretending. And my stuff is, will you please get on the bike, fall down a little time, but because you're good, you figure it out. But if you don't do that, and you just talk about it and watch movies about biking, you will become irrelevant because someone will say like, what about this? And then you won't know. And I said, you have to start learning and doing. But at the same time, you've got to remember that inside a company, it's no use putting out a change manifesto, having change agents, doing M&A. The way change happens in a company is, A, if you tell people why it's good for them, not just what's good for the company. Number two is you incentivize them, either with money, promotion, opportunity to change. And the third is you provide training so they learn how to have the bike. So the whole idea basically is you should learn the bike because learning a bike will be good for you because you won't have to spend so much time walking. By the way, if you learn the bike, we will basically promote you so you will be higher in the organization. And by the way, when you start this biking thing, you're going to be falling down, so we're going to have to train you. So people will laugh at you less because you'll be in the training program, and training program people will accept. Now you can have change happen. Then you can do all your M&A and all your other things. But people don't take care about training, incentives, or communication as to why it's good for the individual. They care about communication of a press release, bringing in an outside change agent, and doing an M&A. And they, then they wonder why it, it didn't work for them. Leading to your book, Rashad, with how to lead with soul. So how would you recommend, again, at this time for leaders to lead with soul? So what has happened is there are five characteristics of leaders that had soul. And as you've read the book, most people were sort of surprised. They said, like, how did you spend time writing this book? Because I spent a year doing research for the book. And then I spent a year writing it. So I had lots and lots of research which is one of the reasons I can do all these newsletters so easy because I've got so much shit from the past. But what, what tends to basically happen is one of the big things I did was I studied leadership. I read books on leadership. I observed leadership. I read articles. I went online to all the leadership things, all the Harvard Business Review. And you know, if you put everything together, you'd have 75 things to do as a leader, and that means nothing's getting done. So these are five characteristics of leaders. So the first one is capability. A leader can't be good unless they're capable. You know, you can't be a leading doctor if you don't know medicine. So that's number one. Second is integrity. Now inside integrity, I've pushed a few things in. So one is integrity in the fact that I trust you. Integrity is transparency, which is how you're making your decisions. Integrity is reality. Are you actually facing the real world or you're facing some imaginary world? Now, unfortunately, today we live in a world where many world leaders are living in an imaginary world. They, they refuse to accept science. They refuse to accept technology. They refuse to accept reality. And my basic belief is, hey, listen, you're going to be dead. And that's real. When you jump out of the window, real. If you decide you don't like science, please don't put on electricity. So don't basically think that we don't realize how stupid you think we are. The people who are treating us stupidly are not stupid themselves. They are basically telling us we're stupid. So my always basic belief is make sure that you don't idol worship anybody because they actually think you're stupid. And that wakes people up. So that's reality. The third one is empathy, which is can you think about the other person? The fourth one is vulnerability, which is can you say you've made mistakes and therefore you surround yourself with people with other skills, including those who can call out the turn on the table and say, boss, you're making a mistake here. 
And the fifth one is inspiration. Because in the end, a combination of leadership traits, behavior, and storytelling will inspire people to do things that their rational minds will say is impossible, like winning a pitch when they're not supposed to win a pitch or whatever it is. And so those five characteristics are really what are there. And I say, very simple, this is what people are doing. I said, just put those up. Capability, integrity, empathy, vulnerability, and inspiration. And then I say, write down three leaders. Write down your mayor, write down your governor, and write down your president, whichever country, or your prime minister, in whichever country you are, and rate them. It's that simple. See if it works. Then rate your bosses. See if it works. Those are brilliant insights, Rishad. And just the tip of the iceberg with respect to all the great content that you have in restoring the soul of business. Now, I do have one more question before I let you go, Rishad. You had a brilliant cartoon in this last writing that you had sent out. Would love to get your perspective on the future of work as you see it. Sure. So that cartoon is from The New Yorker. I I believe the future of work will never be the same again. And the reality of it is the future of work has never been the same. If you think about work, the way we were doing it the last decade, and compare it to 40 to 50 years ago, it was dramatically different. So work always evolves, but we come to a particular point in time where it takes a quantum evolution. So there's a gradual evolution, and then suddenly you do this quantum jump to another level. In the past, it came because of, usually because of some sort of technology. So when you began to have electricity, it changed the way factories were, where things could basically be. You know, computing and telecommunications brought another change in work. What has today brought a change in work is a combination of three factors. There's obviously COVID-19. And what COVID-19 has done is it's made everybody forced to do things that they never had done before. And the biggest one is distributed workplaces, that you're working from home, you're relying on screens, less physical movement of people and less physical gatherings of people. So one part of what I believe the future of work will be is we will go back to gatherings, we will go back to offices, we will go back, but all of those things will be a minority of what we do versus in the past, it was a majority of what we did. In the past, we had to explain why we were not in the office. In the future, we're going to have to explain why do we have to be at the office. And when you think about why we have to be at the office, it's because we either need infrastructure. So if you're a dentist, you have to be in the office. If you're basically creating hardware, you need some of that equipment. But a lot of for telemarketers, they want their people to be there. So that's one case. Or you need to basically collaborate and learn from other people. So that's both education, training, and some sort of creativity. Or third is because there's a client thing that you have to do. You have to meet clients. You can't meet clients at home. It may be safer to go to a place which is controlled by your office than go to any Starbucks, especially if it's winter, to have a meeting. So clients, collaboration and creativity training are necessary for infrastructure. Most of us white-collar workers don't need the first. And the number of client meetings are going to go down dramatically. I used to fly 140 flight segments a year. And at some particular stage, I used to think about making sure I always ended the year on the highest level of United in America, (laughs) which is called concierge key and global services. And now my whole thing is I don't want to fly. Why outside of a vacation? I don't want to fly ever again. And like when I do all of these things, I said, I get access to CEOs fast without all their got haggers on and people who tell me you have to say this and you have to say that. In fact, most C-level executives are asking me, why did we have all these people hanging around us? 
So nature of work is going to basically change pretty dramatically. And I think all of us have to recognize that we are going to become companies of one, even if we're in companies of billions. That in effect, we're going to be looking at, we are part of an ecosystem of our company, but we need to have an expertise or expertise. We need to be well regarded by others and we know how to collaborate with people. And we need to continue to constantly upgrade our skills in order that we continuously get plugged in. Because in effect, this world is the way it's going to be. You're, you're going to primarily be working remotely outside of a few industries, which means 75% of your time, you're going to be working by yourself or a small subset of people at a local WeWork or Regis or something of the sort. That is a pretty dramatic difference. You're going to primarily be interfacing through screens. Yes, you're going to have training, but you're going to have to have much more self-motivated training, which is why the whole thing about self-upgrading yourself your mental operating system. And then the other one, which is a couple of philosophical ones, this I give especially to people who are students, young people in in their careers, or sometimes people who are okay, they're doing okay, but they're not sure what they want to do. And my whole thing is, all you need is less. And I said, you know, there's a lot of the US and obviously much more around the world, people who need stuff desperately, food, housing, healthcare. And then there's about 70, 65% of the US, which is okay. So third, 35, 40% is not, and 60% is okay. Many of the people that I deal with, fortunately, are okay. I mean, they, they have a roof, they know how to pay their bills, they don't have a food problem. They have other issues, but they don't have these. So putting that aside, if you look at all of these other things, the thing that is extremely clear to me is in such a world where you've got all of these things, Now think about how you're living the last six months. Tell me how much of your wardrobe are you using? How many of all the things that you've collected are you using? And most people I've figured out use the same two or three sweatpants or two or three shirts and two or three things that they redo. And I said, so if you think about it, you are working really hard to pay a lot of debt servicing on things that you don't use at all when you're even at home. So could it be that all you need is less? And why that's important is therefore then you don't have to price yourself out of the dream of what you really wanted to do. Richard, what a brilliant insight to end on. All you need is less. And it has taken a pandemic for us to realize that. But I would highly encourage all of our listeners to connect with you on social media to read your brilliant book, Restoring the Soul of Business. We just touched the very surface of it. And obviously to read the blog post that you put on on a weekly basis. So Richard Tabakawala, thank you so much for joining us on Partnering Leadership. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.